Well, let's jump right in and continue in Mark chapter 8. So if you weren't here last week, or you were here last week, and your brain checked out between Sunday and Sunday, uh, we're dealing with Jesus moving outside of Galilee and into the Gentile regions, presumably to get away to teach the disciples, to get away from the tension that exists with the Pharisees, uh, and also to prepare for his journey to Jerusalem. And so last week we looked at two healings. We looked at a man who was uh, deaf and who could not speak clearly, and a woman whose daughter is possessed by an evil spirit. And so the big thing that we pulled out of that account was that this woman is interceding for her daughter, and she does it in such a wise way. Because Jesus speaks to her in a, in, in a parabolic nature. He speaks to her in a parable. That I shouldn't give the food that is, that is meant for the children to the dogs. But she very wisely says even the dogs want the food from their master's table. The crumbs. This woman understands that if this is the Jewish Messiah and she is not Jewish, she is no more than a dog. And all of you dog lovers, it's not a compliment in the Bible. So a lot of you are like, why are you not a dog person? I'm just trying to be more Christ-like, that's all. So, last week you should have walked away recognizing you are a Gentile dog. But in Christ, you are called a child. And you are invited to a seat at the table. And this is great news for the believer. Because if he truly is the bread of life, he may, takes dogs and turns them into children. And he feeds them forever. And this is, we're going to further that picture this week. And our passage from last week is a great bridge from the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 to the feeding of the 4,000 in this chapter. And there's a lot of rich symbolism contained in both. And so I'm going to do some comparison and some contrasting in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And we're actually going to expand on it a lot more next week. So I'm uh, going to brush the surface this week and do more next week. So first I want to address it. What's going on here? Why a feeding of the 5,000? Why a feeding of the 4,000? Why should we care? So the first thing is, one, many modern scholars like to say that this is a retelling. They got their, their details wrong. Uh, Mark and Matthew, the only two to include the feeding of the 4,000, just, just double the, the story and change some, some details. And so you can just explain that away. But a lot of people will use that as a way to criticize the Bible. See, the Bible has these contradictory accounts. One says 5,000, one says 4,000. Uh, one says this, one says, says that, one says seven, one says twelve. See, the Bible doesn't agree with itself. I want to make the case that there are a lot of similarities, but the differences are what are more important. And so first I want to look at the, the um, similarities. So these are two very similar accounts. Large crowds that come to Jesus in the middle of a desolate place. He has compassion on them. It's, going, it's getting late in the day. They are hungry. He has this conversation with his disciples. How many loaves do you have? He takes it. He blesses it, breaks it, distributes it. Everyone eats. Everyone's satisfied. There's plenty of leftovers. He sends them away, and then he goes away. Both of these happen in both accounts. But it's the, it's the differences that make them distinct. And so if it was the same, I could just preach the same sermon I did a few weeks ago. None of you guys remember a few months ago. None of you guys are going to remember what we preached in chapter 6 anyway. And you probably know me well enough 
Yes, you're, you're not going to remember all the details. I didn't remember all the details. But you probably know me well enough to know I'm not going to take the easy route. We're not going to have the same sermon again. It's going to be a very different sermon than last time because the details are important. And so I want you to have this every time we reach one of these issues in the Bible that, that may become a sticking point for someone, I want you to have an answer for it. So I give you lots of proofs of why these two are different, but we need to look no further than the words of Jesus. If you look at what we're going to be covering next week, why do we know that there are two accounts? Verse 19 in the same chapter. When I broke the, the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were broken? Uh, how many broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. Verse 20. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. Jesus himself says there are two accounts. Case closed. Um, so the distinctions, though, is what we're going to we're going to lean on, and where it is in the narrative is helpful. Because we've got to remember, we've got to put ourselves into the context of the Gentile region. Remember last week we said, I handed out the little map. Uh, if you don't have one, you can raise your hand. We've got a couple in, in, in the back. If you had it last week, if you have this week, keep it in your Bible. We'll need it the next few weeks. But basically, Jesus goes out of Galilee, the concentrated Jewish area. He goes up to the northwest, the Tyre inside, and it makes the long way around on the other side of the Jordan. Now he's in the region of the Decapolis which is east of the Jordan River, which is mostly Gentile in a, in, in a scattered region. And then this little interchange with the Pharisees right after is going to tie this all together. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to chapter 8 of Mark, if you're not there already. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and he blessed them. And he said that these should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat, and with his disciples, and went to the district of, Dal- of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply and in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are good and gracious God, abounding in steadfast love and mercy and forgiveness towards sinners like us. Lord, how often have we doubted You? How often have we asked for additional signs and additional proofs? Our flesh will never be satisfied with signs and proofs and evidences. Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in You. Grant us to trust You. 
those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to stand on the righteousness of Christ. Our identity that is in Him, what you have accomplished for us through Him. The confirmation that your Spirit gives us day by day. We are sinners in need of a Savior. and We can trust your promises that will never change. Lord, I do ask for those who are not believers, those who consider themselves believers but do not have faith, those just going through the motions, maybe children who are wondering whether this is just something for my parents or what this Jesus guy actually means for me. Lord, I pray that you awaken them Make them new. Send your spirit to open eyes and open hearts that they would respond in repentance and faith. As Jesse said earlier, there is no hope in anything in the world. There is no other answer but Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life in Him. May we beat that drum until you return. May we shout it from the rooftops. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The good news that was preached by the apostles, we still preach today because it is what the world so desperately needs to hear. And because of passages like this, the gospel going outside of Jerusalem, we have hope. Thank you for not just calling unlikely Jews, but also unlikely Gentiles, that we might be called Israel, that through faith we might be called sons of Abraham because we are first and foremost sons of God. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick up in the first couple words, in those days. So meaning in the same days with what happened before. In the same context of Matthew 15, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but I'm just going to recap it very quickly. So Matthew includes this helpful detail in between the healing of the Canaanite woman and the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus went from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. We know that's the east side, the, the, the Gentile side. And he went up and up on the mountain and sat down, and great crowds came to him, and bringing with them the lame and the blind and the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This reverence for the God of Israel, but still distant because it is not their God yet. And it is in those days that this event occurs. In those days when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to them and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. This is a fascinating word in the original language. Because in the Greek this means inward parts, guts. Like your, your, your inner self, your heart. Jesus is, he has, he has, he has compassion to his very soul. This is not just some fleeting concern for them. This is the same word used when he has compassion on the 5,000. The Jews with sheep without a shepherd. It shows Jesus' care for them and his initiation, or excuse me, yeah, his initiation 
of the concern and the miracle because he calls the disciples. He brings it to their attention. He tells them what's going on inside them. And so I want to stop here for a moment. I think this is a, a beautiful time for some of you. Some of you feel deeply like this. Some of, some of us, like me, have no idea what this means. But some of you feel deeply. When someone hurts, you hurt. When someone is hungry, you're hungry. You love people so passionately. And I talk with, with some of you who feel like this, and sometimes it is such a joy, but sometimes it's such a burden. Because you take on everyone else's sorrow. You take on everyone else's hurt. Why do I feel like this? I want to encourage you and challenge you. In the encouragement, in this you reflect Christ. Because if Christ has that type of compassion, so should we. And we're not all called to that. Some of you, if you, if you care for people in that way, it is a good thing. Praise God for it. But here's the challenge. The challenge is when you try to become their Savior. Their sins are meant to be put on Him, not on you. So when I meet with those of you who, who love well and who care well, but walk around with the, the, the burdens of everyone you care for on your shoulders. Stop trying to be their Savior. He took their sins, not you. And it is dangerous when we try to carry the weight of our own struggles and everyone else is with us. There's a difference between bearing burdens and putting yourself on the cross instead of Christ. The beautiful thing in caring for someone and having compassion for someone is that we know that Christ, you will never have more compassion than He did. And you can point them to Him, the one who we know has compassion. As we're going to see, not just the physically hungry, but the spiritually hungry. And you can take comfort in that. And when you point them to Him, He knows more than you ever will. He cares more than you ever will. And so, hopefully that puts some perspective on things. And why does he have this compassion in this instance? Well, he tells us, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days. Now, the crowds in Mark are rarely positive. This is one of the few instances where it's actually a good thing. But he has compassion because they've been with him for three days. Now, it's interesting that chronologically... And in the sequence of events, the Jews get fed first. The Jews get fed earlier on. The Gentiles are there for three days. They will get fed, but at some time later. And a key word here, if you remember from chapter two, or excuse me, chapter three, or a key phrase, is that because they have been with me. This is the same language he used in chapter three. When the first prerequisite for the apostles was that they would be with me. This is necessary for discipleship that you be with Christ. This shows so much about the Gentiles. They came for the healings and they stayed for three days. And he has compassion on them because of their motives. And they have nothing to eat. Up to this point, the Gentiles have been hungry. They've been lacking physical food for the last three days. But there's deeper symbolism here because they have been lacking spiritual food up to this point. They've been starving for something different because as we looked at last week, their healers 
would try all kinds of things to heal the blind and the, and the lame and exercise demons, and they have no power. As soon as one comes with power, there's a, there's a spiritual hunger that is, that is built up inside them. And after another very important three days, which is coming soon, the Gentiles will have their food. There will be another three days after the, after the cross, before the resurrection. After that, the accomplishment happens and then there will be a feeding of the Gentiles that reaches the end of the earth. And so here's where we are. And we don't know the faith of these, these people, but their action speaks volumes. We do know that they came, they stayed, and they came from long distances. So this is another proof that this is a different account because the Decapolis was a spread out region. Ten cities uh, along the eastern coast of, of, of the Jordan. So they came from long distances and they stayed. Unlike the concentrated Galilee, where it was easier to get there. Remember in, in Galilee when they ran out of food, they could just go to the store and buy it. Here the disciples are going to say, where are they going to get food in such a desolate place? So let's pick up there. So Jesus says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way because some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, they didn't even ask a question, uh, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So one, their question shows their geographical situation. How can you feed them here in this place? There's, there's nowhere to go. There's, there's no food to be had here. You can't, again, we can't go to the, shore, the, the store. But it also shows a little bit about their spiritual condition. Now, their geographical condition is in the middle of nowhere. seems like their spiritual condition is not very different. How can one... It's a lot stronger in the Greek, a lot more confusing. But how can one feed these people with bread here? I mean, think about that for a moment. This is another reason why people think that this is a repeat of the feeding of the 5,000. Because there's no way that the disciples would have forgotten already... There is no way that they would, they would forget about the one who multiplied bread for the feeding of the 5,000. Really? If you've been in Mark with us for any amount of time, did the disciples give you that much confidence? Have we, have, have we seen them be pillars of faith and understanding up to this point? No, no, not really. And if, and if you're, you're wondering, look at verse 17 in the same chapter. When they forget to bring bread, which is a whole other funny story. Uh, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? The third time, next week, they're going to they're, they're have an issue with bread again. They run low on bread like they run low on faith. Thankfully, Jesus provides both. Um, but I want to put this in, in perspective because if you're thinking in your mind, like, they can't really be that dense. As Jesse said earlier, uh, we see within ourselves how often do we forget. But let's, let's think about it, though. The way Mark tells a story, he goes from one event to the next. So Mark writes in a very quick style. And, 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 and. It is continuous action. So there has been some time that has passed. This is a long, uh, more than 100-mile journey on foot. And these large-scale miracles, from what we can understand, are not a common occurrence. Jesus was not in the business of, 
we'll see this more later, of doing big signs to get people's attention. It was always out of concern for people. And plus, how often do we forget? How often do we see this in our own lives when God provides, and then the next time we go through the same exact situation, we, we immediately have this amnesia. Like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Because as you're reading this, it's, it's easy to, to be armchair quarterback and critique what, what they're doing. Why don't they just ask Jesus? Don't they know that, that he would provide? Why don't you? Why don't we? Why is it that Jesus is normally the last place we look? Well, man, I, I don't, I'm out of ideas. There's, there's nothing that can be done here. The disciples are great reminders not to be arrogant and not to be too hard on ourselves. Because the disciples are us in the story. Slow to learn, hard of understanding, and Jesus is way more patient with them than they deserve. And so he does what he does in the last account, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the four. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in, the, in this desolate place? Then he asked them, how many loaves do you have? I love this. I loved it last time, and I love it this time. Stop complaining. Stop doubting. What do you have right now? Which is, which is so appropriate, because this is what the Lord does, right? I've given you all you need to accomplish it. Stop doubting. Stop complaining. What do you have? What have I given you? Is it home with anybody else? Because we always think we need more stuff. We always think, all right, God, I could accomplish your purposes. I could be faithful. I could share the gospel with my neighbor after I read this, this book. Or I could start tithing after I get a better job. Or I could start um, serving someone else once I figure out this stuff in my life. What do you have right now? If we stopped asking for more stuff and trust the stuff that Jesus has given us right now, using it, trusting him to bring the, the fruit and the multiplication from it, we'd have a lot less complaining and a lot less doubting. But this is, amen. But this is what we do, and the disciples are here for us, and Jesus is here for us to remind us. Plus, we also have this, this little twitch in our brain and in our hearts that wants to be God. Well, all right, Jesus, I need to know the what, the when, the how, the why, and then I'll act. How can this happen? Where's the bread going to come from? Why didn't these people bring sandwiches for themselves? Why are they, you know, where are they going to go? All these, all these questions. You're not God. Jesus is teaching them, I will supply whatever you need. What I have given you is sufficient. And then a key word in this whole thing, they said seven loaves. So first of all, it's not a lot. Now, there's not loaves of bread. They're bread cakes, so kind of flat loaves you can stack on, on top of each other. Seven is not, there's not many for 12 disciples, let alone 4,000 people. But that's God's specialty. A little bit for a lot. I will take the most unlikely human resource and I will be glorified in it so that you cannot pat yourself on the back. Because if, 
if, if they came with a whole food truck full of food and they fed everybody, they say, hey, see what we did, this, this, this great thing that we accomplished. But they can't. And God gives them just enough to remind them that I will use something, but there is nothing of your doing in these seven little loaves. And there's, there's, there's more on that in a minute. But the point here is, with man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. As Jesus tells us in Matthew. And He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. Here's another word that is used in both. Sit down. It means recline at table. The same word used in communion. Relax with me. Sit down. Get comfortable. I love that the provision from Jesus always includes comfort and security. Not just does He give them what they need to eat, but He gives them rest. He gives them a time of of satisfaction in Him. The Master is preparing a feast. And He tells them to sit on the ground. A couple of you asked me, what's the green grass mean in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6? Well, springtime, but also east of the Jordan, desolate desert. West of the Jordan, green grass and, and lush fields. So you've got probably a different season and a different uh, geographic setting. So it gives us a little, a little detail there of, of what's going on. And then it gets into the multiplication. So they sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and he gave them to the disciples, and he set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. Um, so people ask me, well, should I study the original languages? You know, when are you ever going to need that stuff? For you guys who are studying that, verse, verse 6 is a really cool exercise when you get to verbs. So there are four verbs in this, this verse. And um, so I feel really nerdy when I get into this Greek stuff, but some of you guys said it's, said it's really interesting, so I'm going to keep going. Um, so the original language gives us a hint in how the miracle is, is performed. The bread is broken once. Aristens, I'm not going to keep going with, with that. And then when it is given, it is a continuous action in the past. When it is set before them, it is a continuous action in the present. And when they receive it, it is completed action. So we don't get this in the English. We would never know this. But the Greek tells us that Jesus broke the bread. He, he blesses it. He breaks the bread once. And he just keeps handing it out, just keeps handing it out, just keeps handing it out, just keeps handing it out. Enough for the disciples to keep handing it out and setting it before the people. And the final thing that, that um, when it is set before them, that, that second time it's completed action again. This, this, this really happened. This happened in the past. This is, this is done Everyone was, was fed. And so we get this beautiful picture of Jesus breaking and just keep handing out food and just keep handing out food. And I love that, that Jesus is the model for all Italian grandmothers. Like you don't know where it comes from, but the food just keeps coming and just keeps coming and just keeps coming. Italian grandmothers are very Christ-like in that way. But there's also a theological implication here. The bread of life is given one time, and only one time. It is only one time. But it continues to sustain. It continues through the apostles to be given out in, where, in enough where everyone eats. 
everyone is, is satisfied. The bread of life only needed to be blessed one time. Only needed to be given one time, but it keeps being distributed again and again. And that's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. That the church, our good news, it never runs dry. It will always give to its fullness. And not just the bread, uh, but little fish. You know, here probably sardines. There's like a, a common meal in that time. Uh, a, a bread cake and a few fish. And he says here that they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. So Jesus gives us this great pattern that, of giving thanks and, and blessing. These two things go hand in hand. This is why we do this before meals. We recognize that everything comes from God, that He is the provider and sustainer of all things. We, we pray before meals, hopefully not just out of some rote habit, but every time we sit down to eat, we recognize that I would not have this if it were not for God's provision. My Father cares enough to keep food in my belly every day. And the word blessing is kind of synonymous with, with, with praise. Not only do we thank Him for it, but we praise Him for it. Jesus is praising the Father in heaven because of what He has done. And as a man, He sets this, this pattern before us. Bless the food. Break the food. Distribute the food. And this is our pattern in the Lord's Supper. That we come to Christ because Christ goes to the Father. From His blessing and from His dis distribution, we are all filled. We get this in physical food. We also get this in eternal food. So now we come to the next verse. When all this is done, food goes out to everyone. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now, I want to look at this satisfied and full. This word was used in the last time. It means to be completely full. It was used when we looked at the, um, the, the parable with the woman eating, eating the crumbs. And it gives us a picture of the kingdom of God. It perfectly provides for everyone's satisfaction. That it multiplies in such a way that no one will ever lack. This is a parable in many ways theologically of the kingdom of God. That Jesus Christ, the, the, the bread of life given once, will supply everyone's need. No one will ever lack. Everyone will be completely satisfied. Who can feed the hungry? Who can satisfy the Gentiles? Only Jesus. All 4,000 men, Matthew tells us, beside women and children. So maybe double that. This is another, again, a large crowd with a few small fish. Seven loaves of bread. Just a beautiful picture of God's feeding in the, the kingdom of God. And, there, and they had all these leftovers. So seven baskets. So as I was thinking about leftovers, um, one of the reasons I love Wednesday night, so I talk to some people who don't like leftovers. I don't understand you people. Um, if, it's, if it's good food, and as long as it's, it can be eaten, I will eat it. 
And so one of the things I love about Wednesday night is everyone eats, everyone is satisfied, and we always have leftovers. So throughout the week, I get to eat Elisa's salad, I get to eat Brittany's brownies, I get to eat Christy's mac and cheese, I get to eat Jesse's pulled pork. This is great. And there's always people leaving with a full belly, and many of us have a plate to go. This is how we should we should fellowship, and this is, this, this is, this is a, a kingdom picture that God always provides for our needs, and we have more than we ask. I came here to get a meal, and I, and I went home with more than I asked for. Is that not the Christian life? I came here to turn from my sins, to get, to, to get full of the emptiness that's in me, and I've been given so much more. But one thing I don't want us to miss is the thing that's been repeated three times. Anyone notice what is very significant here and has been repeated three times that I have not talked about yet? How many baskets? Seven. So, you might know a little bit about numerology. The number seven, the number of, of perfection. Um, but it's also a number of completion. What's interesting about the number seven and then one, anytime something is mentioned three times in Scripture, we pay attention. They had seven bread, seven loaves. He takes the seven loaves, and there's seven baskets left over. So the number seven actually was significant in every culture. The number 12 was significant in Israel because it meant the complete number of the 12 tribes, but it also meant the unity of the, the, the 12 tribes, this number of completion and unity in the 12 tribes of Israel. But the number seven, whether you're the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they all had some significance around seven. They all had some mystical idea about what the number seven was because it was tied to the seven days of the week, the perfect cycle of, of, of the moon for seven days. And so Jesus uses a number 12 that is significant to the Israelites and a number seven that is significant to the, the Gentiles. And Mark emphasizes this because who is Mark writing to? the Gentiles in Rome. And so you got this, this number seven that is, that is important to every other culture, but also in the Bible. The number seven is used more than 300 times in the Bible. Most of them are symbolic. And uh, we'll get into more of that next week. But so I want you to see that there is something going on here. You've got a Gentile, num- you got a Gentile audience. You've got a number that is significant to Gentiles, a, a, a perfect, complete number of bread that satisfies, but also has seven complete bushels. This is actually a bigger bushel than, than was in the uh, last parable. This is the same thing that Paul was lowered down from the roof in. This is, a, this is a pretty big bushel. There's a lot left over. And so Jesus is giving them a picture of the kingdom of God. Again, more next week. And so we'll get into that a little bit more in our application. So you see, what he's, you see what he's doing here. He's doing a similar miracle in the Gentiles. Similar symbolism, unique to them. Similar details. And goes about it in a similar way. And he sent them away. And immediately he gets into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And so he goes from the predominantly Gentile area on the other side of the Jordan and goes across the Sea of Galilee to Dalmanutha. If you see that in your, in your little maps um, to the predominantly Jewish region. Now remember last week I said that his ministry in Galilee is for all intents and purposes over. He's no longer traveling, teaching. He's no longer in the synagogues. Every time he steps foot, 
back in Galilee, something like this happens. And so this is why we're tying these together. He gets on the other side of the lake. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Mark and Matthew have these, these, these sequentially. This happened right after. And so the, inter- the interaction with the Pharisees is in stark contrast to the Gentiles in the last three events. The faith of, of, of the woman, the proclamation of those who had seen the man healed, and those staying with Jesus for three days. The Pharisees come out, this word come out, it's, it's phrased in a way like a military army would, would come out. They're, they're, they're coming out to battle, they're coming out for conflict. They have this hostility in their mind. That is their intention. And they come out seeking from him a sign from heaven. More on that in a moment. To test him. Every time the word test is used in Mark, it is negative. It is only either applied to Satan or the Pharisees. This is not like the testing of our faith that produces righteousness. This is tempting to catch Jesus off guard so that they can discredit him. They're trying to force him to respond in their terms. Now, we don't know how fast news travels. We don't know if someone else got in a boat and went and told them that there was this sign across the lake. We don't know if they knew about the feeding of the 4,000 or not. But trust me, they knew about Jesus. They knew his reputation. If they didn't know about the feeding of the 4,000, they knew about the feeding of the 5,000 or the man with the withered hand or the blind man in, in John. I mean, any of these... Um, they, they would have known. Plus, he was teaching in all the synagogues. They came out with this in, intention. Um, but I do think Mark includes this for timing. Gentile side of, Lake, of the Sea of Galilee to the Jewish side. And they demand from him, as Paul tells us, the Jews demand signs, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, as they always have. If we look back in, in the Jews' history, getting out of Egypt, what do they do? Just a few days later, they're asking Aaron to make a golden calf because they've forgotten God already. This is the God who saved us. Or maybe God's not going to provide, so where are we going to get food from? Gives them manna. Where are we going to get meat from? Gives them more meat than they, they can eat. Where are we going to get water from? Give us a sign, God. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Always. They're getting so used to the miracles that they take them for granted. They are so dependent on the signs, and that is so far from faith. They, don't, they, they no longer trust God. They put more faith in the miracles than they do in the God who they were supposed to point to. And they ask for a specific sign, a sign from heaven. Now when they ask this, they are presuming and presupposing that Jesus is not from heaven. They're basically saying, since we know you're not from heaven, give us something from heaven so that we may believe you. Right away, they're approaching this with doubt and with hostility. And so we may ask ourselves, well, Jesus could call down fire from heaven. He could call down legions of angels. He'd give them any number of signs. Why doesn't he? Now, this is where the Gospels are going to be helpful. So for the next few minutes, we're going to be flipping forth to the Gospels. So look at Luke chapter 20. Very similar exchange gives us a, a hint of why Jesus doesn't give them what they want. Luke 20, starting in verse 1. One day... As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. Similar question. He answered them. 
I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This gets to the intention of their heart. This gets to their understanding of the kingdom of God. And they discussed it with one another, mumbling amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered him that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is why Jesus no longer has ministry in Galilee. He's not going to throw his pearls before swine. They have no desire to truly know. They don't want the truth. They only want to accuse him, just like their father. They only want to test him in a way to accuse him like their father, the accuser, does. There's, there's more evidence from this. Give us a sign from heaven. John's context here is so helpful. Look at John chapter 6. We know John chapter 6 as his whole discourse on the bread of heaven, him being the bread of life. And we looked at this when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. But you know what also happens in John chapter 6? The feeding of the 5,000. Look at John chapter 6, verse 22. He feeds the 5,000 on the next day in Galilee. They ask him, skip down to, what do I want to pick up? Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? He fed the, he fed the 5,000 yesterday. What, do you, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They are completely missing the symbolism here. This, the, the, the irony of open mouth insert foot here is incredible. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives you and gives life to the world. Send us a sign from heaven. You're looking at him. And to show you, I'm the God who gave you manna in the wilderness. And I gave it to your, your brothers, your fellow Israelites yesterday. And I'm standing in front of you. Give me another sign from heaven. How ridiculous. And he said, sir, give us this bread always. And they just compound the condemnation on themselves. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The last time they asked him, he said, I am the bread of life. I came down from heaven. Send us another sign from heaven. There's no way they will believe. The throne of God could come down in front of their eyes and they would still doubt. They would say, give us another sign. And if you don't think that's enough, still in John chapter 7, verse 31. By the time he makes it to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, look what they say here. John 7, 31. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? His reputation had gone all throughout Israel. Those in Jerusalem knew that there's no way anyone could do more than than he could. The Pharisees do not truly want an answer. This is why Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. This shows his humanity. As deep as his compassion goes, his frustration goes deep as well. 
he is so frustrated with the hardness of hearts and the commitment of sin. His heart is burdened because of their unbelieving hearts. I mean, imagine this three long days healing people, Gentiles coming to him, staying with him, and now you've got to deal with these knuckleheads on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Really? You guys again? And this is how he responds. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign to this generation, meaning those who are alive now. Matthew adds one very important detail. And he's familiar with the account in Matthew. He says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. This is important. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 12. So the the parallel account is in Matthew 16, but we're going to read Matthew 12, where Jesus explains the sign of Jonah. The only sign for this generation, for the Jews who are alive now, Pick up in verse 38. Last time they asked him for a sign, here's what he told them. (laughs) And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you, to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What does this mean? I love this. That the, that the story that every little kid in church knows. Every little kid loves the story of Jonah, the big fish, the big whale. Jonah is the gospel. Look at this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah is the point to Christ. Cowering, sniveling Jonah, running as fast as he can in the other direction in the belly of a beast is to show us that Christ, as the final prophet, taking the place of the weakest prophet. Three days will be in the belly of the beast, in, in the ground. Just like Jonah spit up on land, Jesus will come back to life. He will be raised from the dead. This is the sign that just this generation will get. It's the only sign they will get. They will see the prophet Jonah perfected. Dying, rising to life. In such a glorious and powerful way that no one could ever deny it unless they are dead. Just like these Pharisees are dead. But he continues. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation. Remember, Nineveh was so wicked that Jonah didn't want to go there. Jonah was mad at God because he knew God would be merciful to these wicked people in Nineveh. Nineveh will judge the Jews. Nineveh repented by the worst sermon ever. Jonah walks in and mumbles under his breath, the kingdom of God is coming, he's going to destroy everyone. And they, and they repent in sackcloth and ashes. They repented at the pity, the pitiful preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is what they are staring at. This is what is at play here. And their sign from heaven would come very soon. Because it is the power of the Father who had raised him from the grave. And when the temple veil is split in two from top to bottom, this is something that can only come from heaven. 
They're going to get plenty of signs from heaven. As the tongues fall on the apostles, showing that the Holy Spirit will remain with His people. But they don't really want that. These are bullies who just want to pick a fight and who just want to argue and want to look good in front of their friends. And Jesus does something physically but also symbolically. And He left them, the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, and He got in the boat again and went to the other side. The Jews were no longer receptive. His, his ministry to the time in Galilee was over. He went over to the other side, back where the Gentiles were. Jesus does what you do when you're fighting a bully. There is no winning, especially not for those bullies. He walks away. They don't, they don't really care about the truth. They don't really care about the question. He goes to those who are going to be more receptive. So I think there's some cool application here. So one... I want you to really meditate on Jesus' compassion. Because I think we, we, lose, we lose sight of that. We think, well, Jesus, doesn't, Jesus is too busy. He doesn't care about what I'm going through or what I'm wrestling with. Down to his very heart, in his inward being, in his guts, he had compassion on the Gentiles. What do you think he has for his children? Those who are covered in Christ's blood. And his compassion, not just for the spiritually hungry, but for the physically hungry, is a great reminder that we can go to him with anything we need and we can bring people to him confidently. You think you are hurting for your lost friend or your lost family member? Bring them to Christ. Point them to Christ. You think you're hurting for the person who's struggling financially, struggling in their marriage? Bring them to Christ. He is the compassionate one more than you could ever understand. And I love the picture of the feeding of the five and the 4,000. We're going to spend more time next week. But the application here that the complete number of Israel, the complete number of the Gentiles, everyone satisfied, every piece picked up. It should give us assurance in our salvation. Not one crumb will be lost. No one who is truly in Christ will ever go hungry. More importantly, spiritually will never go hungry. Will never be lost. I have not lost one. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Every crumb, every bit will be, will, will be gathered up. The, full, the fullness of the 12 tribes of Israel. The perfection of the gospel going to the nations. Every bit of it in Christ. And so when you get discouraged or doubts begin to creep in, the gospel is preached to us in every parable, in every miracle, in every instance, it points to Christ. And it should be an encouragement to us. But not just in the eschatological meaning, in the, the salvation end times. His bread perfectly satisfies right now. Right now in Christ, you can have and should have physical fullness. Americans, we don't know what, what hunger is. I am dying. I am starving. No, you're not. If you have ever gone without a meal, let someone in here know. We have plenty of food to go around. He meets every need, but more importantly, every spiritual need. So many of you think that I need to get more. I need to study more. I need to do more. Yes, study. Grow in the knowledge of God. But you have fullness in Christ Jesus right now. 
There is nothing he lacks. Let's encourage you to, to know that you have that in him. And this points us to communion. And communion, when we get reminded of the bread that is, that is multiplied, the body that is given, the blood that is shed, that he is sufficient for every physical and spiritual need. When we take and eat of him the bread of life, we will never hunger again. When we drink of him the, the living water, we will never thirst again. These, remi- these miracles are to be constant reminders of us. Don't just gloss over them as cute little moralistic stories. This is the gospel for our encouragement. And finally, I want to address faith. So I want to share this quote from James Edwards. Uh, his commentary on Mark is great. Uh, but I love this little summary he gave at the end of this section. I want to close with this. He says, Faith that depends on proof is not faith but only veiled doubt. Faith, like love itself, cannot be proven. There is no scientific test for it. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. Next slide. Is there one more? The Pharisees turn and walk away. The disciples follow Jesus into the boat. I love how he he ties this together. Faith comes when one steps into the boat with Jesus and does not prefer to remain on the safety of the shore. So I just want you to think about that for a moment. What about our faith? Is there an active participation? Is there an active commitment to follow Jesus? Even if it means leaving the safety of the crowd. Do we sit with Him? Do we know that He invites us to recline at table with Him? Or do we ask Him for more signs? I've had conversations with some of you. I know that some of you are still saying, Jesus, prove yourself. You haven't shown me enough yet. I need more. Do you? Is there anything more that the Son of God could give you than the promise of fullness in Himself? I just want us to think about faith for a moment. Do we live like people of faith? As Jesse was saying earlier, as the world is going to hell in a handbasket, whatever you want to call it, everyone else is fearful running around like chickens with their head cut off. Do we live like people of faith? Do we live like Jesus satisfies our every need? Do we live like we are hidden in Him and His forever? Are we trying to find our peace and security and help somewhere else? Are we saying, all right, one more sign, Jesus. One more, one, one more proof, Jesus. What else can you do? Is He sufficient or is He not? Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We praise You. As Your church, it is the highest privilege to be called Your bride and also Your sons. We see perfect masculinity and perfect femininity. That Your people reflect You 
in their compassion, in their strength, in their truth, in their love, in their justice, in their mercy, because you are all these things and you are all of them in perfection. Lord, help us to trust in you and know that we are hidden in you. To know that the greatest sign we ever need is that Jesus was crucified, died, buried, and was rose again. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will reign forevermore. That is the only sign we need for faith. Lord, help us to put our faith in your finished work. The bread of life that feeds, satisfies to the fullness of everyone who believes. Lord, I pray for your church. You would sanctify her, protect her, make her a stalwart stalwart in these crazy times. The times have always been crazy. Sin has always abounded. Chaos has always reigned in the hearts of the wicked. But in the hearts of the righteous, there is peace and there is joy and there is love because your spirit seals us. We thank you for this. Remind us of this. Keep us in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.